Chris and Will here, and you know, you guys, we have a challenge for you, and it's all about the red shirt. That's right. It's been a symbol of pride since 1991. In 2020, we're spreading the message of diversity, equality, and kindness with the red shirt challenge across the globe. On June 6th, join the world in wearing your red shirt and help us bring us all together hand in hand. Go to kindredpride.org to register. Join us June 6th with your red shirt. Show it off. Hashtag RSPD. It's the show that makes us talk. You know, the other day I got so bored that I had made plans to read a book about sinkholes. Oh, okay. But they fell through. <laughs> what about our life? With Kristen Will, Season 2. another great episode of what about our life with Kristen will how are you hi yes we're going through this again yet for another week but um you know it's gonna get better it's getting there we got a little bit of time to go but we're staying well we're staying safe are you i know you are but uh hey let's just face it we are still bored shitless. I don't care what the hell we have to sit here and say. We are bored shitless. And even though we got things to do, you don't know how hard it is to motivate yourself to do them. Yeah. To do them. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> literally, I just can't even tell you, you know, is is shitless even possible? Even if it's, even if you're constipated, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's that's what it is. We are bored just as if you're sitting on the toilet waiting for something to come out. Shitless. There you go. That's the way it mm-hmm. is. That, yes. So how are you? This week we're talking about left to the mercy of life decisions. And I think when we decided to go ahead and do this today, I think the life decision says, what the hell? Let's just put some entertainment into it. That sounds like a great idea. Yes. I am totally sober. I have not had any alcohol. I'm good. Yes, he is sober. Yes. I'm a witness. <laughs> I've, I've got a little bit of a headache, but other than okay, that. Okay, that explains it then. Well, you know. I, I just do. I, I don't know why I've got this headache, but it don't go. It will not go away. And I think its name is called Willie. No. Yes, it is. Not. It totally no. is. So when we're talking about left to the mercy of life decisions, you know, a lot of different things in life you have to decide. And sometimes mm-hmm. those decisions are not always fun. And you're always going to go back to those decisions. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're whatever, you yeah. know, at whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And that's the mercy of it. I mean, decision making isn't really easy and it can be sometimes. I don't think it was meant to be fun. No, to I, be don't, honest. I don't think so either. <laughs> I don't think so either. But, you know, when you're you're when you're at the mercy of something, you're you're at the top of it and, and your life is the top. And, yes. and you coordinating yourself you, you have to make you as a priority. Uh, yeah. And in that comes in talking about real friends. Oh, you know, yeah. um, real people in your life. Yeah. And the, you know, the still to the movement of life. Okay, let's look at family. 
What oh. make the, you know they're they're they, they're blood related, but yeah. that don't mean nothing. Yeah, that don't mean nothing. That they 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 think that they own you, run they you, don't. and they don't. They don't. They don't. So you have to be the mercy of those decisions to get you through the crap that family puts you through. Oh, sometimes. yeah. Yeah. And sometimes with friends. I tell you, when this whole pandemic started, I found myself snoozing because, you know, Facebook has that. Yes. Uh-huh. I found myself snoozing about half of my friends on there because they were too negative and they were going too political. That doesn't mean I don't have respect for their views or them as a person or I don't can still consider them a friend. Absolutely. I have respect for them. I, I still adore them as friends, but sometimes just to get through things, especially like this, I have to snooze that because I just don't want to participate. It's too much. I think it's a great, I don't know, a filter. No, I'm going to say it. Filter. Because you know your own well-being that you know that, okay, in order to, in times like these, you know, I mean, jokingly speaking, to stay sane, you have to... You do certain things yeah. just to keep yourself active and you have to stay positive. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yes. And this is hard. And you think having a headache now with just basically finding motivation, imagine the headache I had when all that crap just started. Yeah. It's like, gosh, just please just do your thing and let everybody else do their thing. And, and just- I, th- I think the real thing out of this too is how every person is addressing it, you know? I mean, like for us, you know, we're around each other 24-7, but we still are going through changes through all of this and handling certain situations. It's all about how you deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's how you deal with life, how you manage things in life. Because even before this pandemic and even after this pandemic, it's going to be just like during it. You're going to have to find a way to manage the good, the bad, the wonderful, the ugly, everything. Yes, And that's that's important. Mm -hmm. And that brings you to the mercy of life decisions and another thing that draws into it is mental illness and we've talked about that yes you know silence is a key thing you know a lot of people keep their inner thoughts and their problems to themselves and on the outside you you wouldn't even think there was Mm -hmm. something wrong yep and that is because they're finding that confidence in themselves to put on this facade because at least for myself i don't like talking about my problems and sometimes when i feel the need that i need to to let it out then I will. But in other times, that's how I find my way of dealing with stuff is working it out mentally for myself. But for others who are very vocal, when it's silent and there's nobody there to vocalize with them, that creates further mental illness. And during this whole pandemic, I think a lot of people are forgetting that. Yes, we have so many different routes to get in touch with people, but we don't really know how they handle certain yeah. things like that. Mm-hmm. So mental illness is another great thing because even when you, when you're dealing with it yourself or, you know, somebody else is dealing with it, you're at the mercy of that either way, because you have to decide how beneficial you need to be to a person and how less beneficial you need to exactly. be to that person. Yes. So yeah. Mercy of mental illness is, is a big key with that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one thing that I have created for myself that's given me a wonderful balance on progression, because I'm all about progression, is going through the word life, L-I-F-E. And if you individualize the word life and find the perception of the word, you're going to be able to outline who you really are. Like, for example, I'll go through it. With the letter L, I perceive that as love. Yes. Yes. Because you know what? 
you have to love yourself. You have to love what you're doing. You have to love everything about you. And you have to love anything that surrounds your soul, the good and the bad. Uh Because loving yourself is the key to understanding yourself. And it's also the key that's going to help you move forward. Or it's the key that's going to that's going to push you to move backwards if you're not paying attention. Whoa. So L for love, of course. And then I, I use invent. Nice. That's right. Because you have to invent your direction. You have to inv- invent who you are, your goals, uh, your style, where, where you want to be in life, where you want to go in life, family, kids, whatever the case may be, you have to invent yourself. So by loving yourself, you're able to invent who you are mm-hmm. and direct yourself to whatever pattern you feel fit for you. That's creating your style. Then that brings you to F, which is find. You have to find your starting point. You have to find how to continue, how to maintain, how to succeed, how to deal with problems. Find your definitions of how you see right or wrong and find your purpose. Oh, that's that's amazing. Finding where to begin and how to keep going is how you succeed and and progress. And, you know, you bring up a very great point because, you know, um, when I was younger, you know, maybe I was uneducated or maybe I wasn't fully um, paying attention, but I think I was going out of order of that. Like I thought I was lost. So I thought I was finding myself, but I wasn't loving myself. No. So doing it out of order, it's going to prolong things. Absolutely. So when you put it down in the rows, When you love yourself, you're able to invent who you are in your style. Mm -hmm. Then you're able to find how you begin and how you progress, how you can change further. You find changes in your life. So then that brings you to the last letter of life. And that is E. And I say that is evolve. Nice. Like a Pokemon. (laughs) You evolve yourself. You evolve your legacy. You evolve your plans of growth. You evolve life, you evolve your value and that's progressive. And that's how you, that's how I manage and deal with life. I have to love myself. I have to invent who I am and who I want to be. I have to find out how I'm going to get there, stay there and progress. And I have to evolve on my future, who I am at this point and what I'm worth. And that's what the meaning of life to me is. Wow. It is. It's it's a Amazing. Good de- it's a great definition to have. So now we go into life decisions. Okay. So let's talk about that. You know, again, it comes along the line with mercy because life decisions like having a family or having kids or schooling, whatever, you know, you have to make those decisions. And life decisions can be hard. They oh, can yeah. be complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when to love and when to find love. You know, that's a good life decision. They don't mean the same. They really don't. They're both different. You know, uh, life decisions on work. You know, should you stay at that job? Should you quit? But you You know know what? I think that goes into loving yourself first, you know, because if you're in a situation to where it's not working out for you, you have to love yourself enough to know, do you stay or do you go? Whether it's a job, a relationship, 
or anything else like that. It's part of your evolve, mm -hmm. you know, is, is that work going to evolve me? Is it going to progress me? You know, you can't live by that philosophy that says, at least I have a job. It's a job. It pays the bills because you're going to be stuck in that philosophy mm -hmm. forever. Yeah. You got to find a way to evolve, find the job that will get you to that. And, that, yes. and though, you know, you guys, we've had plenty of people that have disagreed with us uh -huh. on that, mm -hmm. but I'm going to tell you, our pattern has got us to where we are today yes. and it has put us in the right spot at the right time with the right people. And we've been able to have some amazing projects, do some of the most amazing things and even have this show. Yes. We've had to evolve the show. We've had to change some of it. We've mm -hmm. had to listen to bosses tell us we don't like that. And we've had to disagree with that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, life decisions comes to that. You have to find what's important. It's the same thing of, with relationships. You have to find what's right between both of you. Each of you in a relationship sacrifices something. Mm -hmm. You sacrifice your independence to become a one. Yeah. So in that sacrifice, it's, you know, it. you have to understand that it is a sacrifice, not a demand. You know, you talk about that. And I think this is from the movie Eat, Pray, Love. But one of the things where um, Julia Roberts' character at the very end of her travels and she's in Bali and she meets up with the other guy by accident. And when they were at that uh, pier, I think it was a pier, and he's like, I just got to get you into the boat. And one of the things he said was, "You, or I think it was him that said it, you got to love your, find somebody that will love you no less than you love yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I took the long road to get to that, but I got to it. <laughs> yes. And you know, and same, it's the same thing with change. When you love yourself, you're going to have to change. You have to know when to change. You have to know how to keep the change and to change again. One change doesn't do it all. You have to know and want to change multiple times. That's what survival in anything in life and relationships and family is all about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But today, you know, we are going to go through an amazing topic. This guest, the guest that we have with us, he is the son of a Holocaust survivor. Wow. He's a professor of criminal law and evidence law in a top law school in L.A. Uh-huh. And, you know, he's worked with CNBC, CBS, King's World, covering the Scott Peterson trial, O.J. Simpson trial, Timothy McVeigh trial. And he's got a great book out, which we've read. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk to him about it. The book is called Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream. What a title. I know. What a title. But it's a great yeah. book. It really but, is. But, I mean, it has book. so much meaning in that title. But you read the book and it's like... Wow. Yes, absolutely. Like, wow. His name is Stan Goldman, and we are so proud to yes. have him on our show. So we're going to give him a call. So sit back, relax, because Stan Goldman is coming up. We are honored to welcome our special guest, Stan Goldman. So how is LA? Oh my gosh, I've seen the pictures of the 405 completely uh, dead, and that is like unreal. Uh, yes. Um, I uh, it was My mother's uh, birthday, uh, would have been her 110th birthday uh, uh, last week, and I drove out to where she's buried in the middle of the afternoon, which would normally have been a good hour plus 
ride, and it was uh-huh. was there in 25 minutes and back in 25 minutes. Wow. Uh, yeah, totally so at least, I mean, this was at, I left at 3.30 in the afternoon, I came back at 5. You can imagine what the 101 and the 405 would have, which is what I had to travel on, would have, uh, would have looked like at that hour normally, but it was clear sailing. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely. So we read through your book. What an amazing story. So wow. I have to, I want, first I want to start off with this. I know that you, uh, you teach law over in, yeah. uh, in L.A. What made you want to get into teaching law, first off? Um, you know, it's, I like telling stories. Good. Uh, I think they have been it. I, I, uh, I wanted to be a lawyer from a very young age. Um, in fact, uh, I was given a briefcase for my 10th birthday wow. because I kept talking about wanting to be a lawyer. True. I still have it. It's upstairs in a, in a closet. Nice. Uh, wow, so I was, that's great. Yeah, really true. And, uh, and when I got to college, I, I became a history major um, for no particular reason other than the fact I had such a low priority that when I signed up, there were almost no other classes available. But there's some history classes. So I said, okay, I'll take some history classes. And why waste them? I'll become a history major. Wow. That's the way the 18-year-old mind works. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, I, um, and as I was a history student, I said, geez, I'd really love to do this. I'd love to, to, teach, uh, to teach history and just stand up there and tell stories all day, really. And then, uh, but I always wanted to be a lawyer, so I went to law school. And I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll do this in law. I'll become a law professor. And, fool, I, and this, I, I literally had graduated and not yet passed the bar because, you know, there's this, you know, you, you graduate and then eight, uh, n- 10 weeks later, eight weeks later is the bar given and then you have to wait, you know, three and a half months for the results. And I was in that period waiting and I said, well, got nothing else to do. I'll send out applications to law school, see if anybody's interested in hiring me. And wow. they, somebody did. So I taught, uh, they offered me a full-time job. I said, no, I want to practice for a while. And, uh, but I literally started working as a lawyer uh, for the public defender's office uh, the same week I started teaching uh, as a part-time professor. Because when I said I didn't want it full-time, they asked me if I'd be interested in starting part-time. So I did. I did that for, for eight years. And in the eighth year, the school uh, Loyola offered me a you know, full-time tenure-track position. So I said, well, those are pretty scarce. I, maybe I ought to take this. Wow. I didn't realize I'd, I'd do it the rest of my life, I'd, you know, but I was, I was the man who came to dinner. I just oh. never left. <laughs> very, very nice. Mm-hmm. So at what point during this whole transitioning of your life did you say, okay, well, I, I want to write a book? Oh, I had often thought in my entire life about writing a book, but um, I, was, I was never well suited, in my opinion, to write a book. I... I uh, I can't tell a long story. I thought. Um, uh-huh. Matter of fact, you you I, I, when I was a public defender, I was a little unique. I mean, I probably had probably had seventy jury trials in my career, and uh, I think of the seventy, maybe a half a dozen, uh, my closing arguments went meant, went more than twenty or twenty five minutes. Even in murder cases, you know, they uh-huh. it just I I, I there, there's this. There was this evangelist in Los Angeles, um, oh, way back when, in the you know the in the twenties and thirties, I think, uh, named Billy Sunday, and he had one famous sentence I always appreciated, and that was, "No souls are saved after the first twenty minutes." Oh wow! So uh, I always tried to keep things very short. And in fact, you know, I, I had a job with the New York Daily News for a couple of years in there in the middle, and they they printed about. 
I think, 88 stories of mine um, uh-huh. in the paper in the couple of years I worked for them. And uh, that was very good for me. They were short. They were, you know, I, you know, I'd be 600 words or whatever. And um, and uh, that was that was good. I, I, I like short stories. And when I, I never really thought I could write a, a book because uh, but in a sense, what I did was I took three short books. I wrote three short books and I blended them together. That, that's what makes the, the book seem the way it does. Wow. Um, and everybody thought I couldn't blend them together. It took quite a while to, to, to kind of get them to work smoothly, I thought, uh, as one narrative, even though there were really three separate ones. Very nice. So um, at what point, again, did you, when you decide, all right, I'm going to write a book, and you found this story about your mother, this incredible story about your mother. Tell me about that. Well, it was, it was in a sense, the reverse. Uh, my mother, I'd often wondered... Because my mother didn't know. I mean, my mother knew, you know, she knew, she knew a lot. She knew, she knew how she survived, but she didn't know why she had survived, meaning she didn't know the, she, she knew that, you know, one day she's in the line to the gas chamber, you know, one minute, and the next minute she's put on a train, um, and she's taken out of the line, put on a train, and she's on this train for three days and nights, you know, and, and, uh, and finally the train stops, and they open the doors, and she's in Berlin, you know, how, the, how does a thing like that take happen? You know, how right. does a thing like that happen? And, and she never knew how that happened. Not, the women she was with never knew why any of this happened. So the years had gone by while she was still alive, and every once in a while I'd, I'd go to a Holocaust uh, uh, museum. There were just a few back then, small ones, and I'd try to research it. And I could never really find anything. And, and every once in a while when I'd find something I thought might connect to it, it was in German, and I don't really read German, and it was short, and... So I kind of gave it up, and then my mother passed away, and I was in Israel seven years later visiting her best friend who had survived the war with her, uh-huh. and uh, her uh, her um, daughter had been with her mother the moment who had survived the camps with my mother at, at some event at a Holocaust museum about the particular camp that they were rescued from. Uh-huh. And so she'd taken her mother to it, and, and they'd had some pamphlets and little handouts and things informationally. And she picked up one of them, sort of almost at random, and a little thing, 10, 12, 15 pages long. I don't even think it was that. I think it was like 10 or 12 pages long. She started reading it, and then, and then you know, uh, uh, took it home with her because, you know, it sounded like a description of the rescue that physically was described by our mothers, but with no idea why they were rescued, right. um, from, from a guy who claimed to have uh, arranged the rescue. And uh, I, she, I, 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 she showed me this pamphlet, which she'd gotten a few months before, and uh, I'm thumbing through it, and there's a photograph from a Swedish newspaper of the women upon their arrival. There's this big group of women, you know, and, and, and uh-huh. I had awfully good eyes in those days. Uh, this was about, um, this was like 14 years ago. I had, and uh, I, in the farthest, farthest corner on the left, I see these two tiny faces, uh-huh. and I just point to them and I go, Look at this. And she goes, she just looks at it and looks and she goes, do you think? Uh, you know, and so we take it to her mother. It was, in a, it was in a home and I give her a magnifying glass and show her the picture. And, uh, and uh, she just looks at me and says, yeah, it's your mother and me. What about it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not in the book, by the way. Um, and uh, and, uh, and uh, so I, so I, I, I found it. That was in Hebrew, so I couldn't even read the Hebrew because I, I don't. And, uh, I I managed to, after some searching, turned out somebody at some junior college in the East had uh, 
had translated this, had seen this and translated it into English. So I was reading it, and I just thought it would make an interesting story. And I, I was giving a luncheon talk um, at an event, uh, and uh, I decided to make that my talk. And I gave this talk, and there was an editor of a journal in the, uh, in the audience. He came up to me afterwards and said, you know, could you write that up? I think we'd like to print that. So I spent six months writing up this little article, and then it was read by a noted Holocaust scholar here in Los Angeles, uh-huh. um, who I knew somewhat, and he, uh, you know, I'd met, and, uh, you know, he, say, he contacted me and said, you know, you really ought to turn this into a book, and I said, yeah, right, so uh-huh. I don't have time for that sort of thing. So about 18 months later, um, from that conversation, I found myself without a class to teach, a scheduling snafu had taken place at the school, I was right. scheduled to teach, and then the room was needed for something else and they never gave me another class so there i am being paid as a tenured law professor with nothing to teach that semester i said you know maybe i'll maybe i'll just sit down and try to try to put that article together into a book that'd be a good thing project for the next eight months i've got off i'm sure i could finish this in eight months well eight years later it came out wow that long there were a lot of leads to follow that turned out to be a lot of very, you know, difficult to find little bits of information needed to put the thing together and and then to to write it in such a way that, you know, I thought, you know, it could be easily read by 17 and 18 year olds in high school. You know, that's that was the audience I was looking at. It turns out instead of 17 year olds, it's primarily septuagenarians who call me to thank me for writing the book. But uh, wow, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if the younger crowd, uh, you know, picks it up a bit. I, I it was a required reading at a last semester at a class here in Los Angeles, oddly enough, an English literature class that the English nice. teacher read it and liked, liked yeah. what I'd, how I'd written it. But, uh, and I went to that class, and there were all 20- and 21-year-olds in the class. It was upper division undergraduate, and uh, they, they, uh, they, they adopted to it so, uh, uh, quite nicely. So I think, I think maybe it, I, w- I would really like it to be read by the audience I intended it to, which were younger people, but you know, it's uh-huh. not, not always easy. Right, right, absolutely. Right. Well, I mean, I would have to say, you know, starting from just that small little, because you had said that they were initially like three stories, you know, put together, you know, just the fact that you thought you could only write short stories and then however many years later you have a whole book, that's a really big accomplishment. And I think that's incredible. Absolutely. Well, I got I to gotta tell you a story about that. Uh, uh, six years ago, I think it must have been by now or almost, I had a a very rough draft of the book in terms of it was really more of just sort of organized research with a you know occasional rewritten paragraph um, that you know and uh, I had a friend of mine who had in a, in another life he doesn't do that anymore was a was quite a successful screenwriter he had he had sold uh, twenty screenplays in his life and then decided you know before he turned fifty he was you know, he, a, he was tired of it, and he wasn't—he wasn't doing that well selling stuff. So he'd go into a different business, and he did. And he's a very successful uh, as what he's doing. But he wanted to—he um, wanted to read the trash, draft. And I said, no, 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 it's not not anywhere near ready. I, I'm just—I just basically put the information down on mm-hmm. paper. He said, well, give it to me. I'll, I'll give you an idea as to what I think of it. It's better I read it at the earliest stage. So I said it to him. He lives in Florida, and. Um, two weeks go by, I don't hear from him. So I call him up and say, hey, I know you're busy. Did you get a chance to take a look? I said, yeah. I said, any, uh, any critique? Any, any thoughts? He said, yes. Throw it away. Oh, wow. And I said, <laughs> throw it away? I mean, you, really? You don't, you don't think it has any value? He said, oh, no, it's a, it's a great story. 
uh, and, and it's fascinating stuff, but you'll never get it to work as a nonfiction. You have to take the information and write it as a novel, because only as a novel is it going to ever work as a literary work, because there are too many diverse subjects. It's really like three different books you've got here. They're short books, but they're books. They're separate books. You've got to take away at least one of them, uh, and two if you could, and just write up one of them as a, you know, as a nonfiction, so you can play with characters and time and, and write dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, that's the last thing I plan on doing, uh, because, you know, I mean, it was thoughtful. Thanks for telling me, but I, I don't want people to think I've made any of this up. I yeah. don't want people now or a hundred years in the future to think this is just a made-up story it's fiction how much of it is true if it's you know if it's if it's just a novel so i spent the next and i'm not kidding i spent the next four years rewriting the book so that it would i wouldn't have to change any fact from reality Mm -hmm. i I would any conversation i had would be doc in the book would be documented by memoirs because a lot of people in the Nazi administration, even wrote memoirs um, afterwards, and uh, I, 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 you know, I, I just kept writing and rewriting. I remember I was interviewed, oh, maybe a couple of months ago on a radio program, and the and, by, and when we were done, the uh, <clears throat> the interviewer said some, almost exactly, "Well, sir, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, after reading your book, I realized what a wise man you are." And I said, "And I said, hey, hold on a second. Anybody can sound wise after thirty-five drafts." Wow, you know, I, 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 I didn't sound that wise after the first, you know, the first <laughs> five or six drafts of this. It took a long time to sound like I, I knew, you know, that that this thing worked uh, this right. way. So it's, uh, it's practice. It was practice. But I was rewriting, 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 rewriting um, on this book before it, uh, before I was willing to send it off because my friend was right. It was, it was a very difficult proposition, but I didn't throw out any of the stories. I. I had still three books blend into one, but it's not, it's not like book one, book two, and book three. It's all three books are blended from page to page, from paragraph to paragraph, and that's what took the time yeah. to, to integrate them into one flowing story so nobody would realize that it was actually three completely different stories that had been blended together. And I consider that to be a talented art. I mean, to do that, that's... I mean, even though the span of time it took, the fact that it was done, that's amazing. Yeah, well, it was. I am glad to have gotten it done. Although once again, every once in a while, I'll read a paragraph and go, <clears throat> "Why did I use that word?" Yeah, <laughs> it's that self-critic coming in. No, and, yeah, yep. man, man. Well, yep. you know, it's. I wonder where that came from. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you know, you know, oh well, you know the old line about Jews and Catholics. Jews are guilty about everything in particular in Catholics about everything in general. I, I sometimes, you know, I'm a wow. Jew teaching at a, Catholic, at a Catholic law school, so maybe I've got a little of both in me. I don't know. Wow. So let's go into a little bit with your book. So tell me a little bit about um, your mother first off and then her tremendous story. Well, my mother was, uh, a lot of people would have thought a bit of a character. She was, uh, she was, uh, funny with a kind of acid sense of humor and you know she kind of she was you know about four foot eleven and uh always tiny she was you know until i think she was in her late 60s when she started to finally gain some weight she probably would top out at about 
91 pounds. So she was a tiny, tiny person and uh, amusing to many people because she had such a thick Yiddish accent, you know, the kind of thing you only hear in old movies now because nobody uh-huh. seems to have it anymore except perhaps in a handful of old old seniors' homes uh, around the country. But uh, that was just the natural accent. I mean, um, that was the accent from the, that was the Yiddish accent. Not too many people uh, had it anymore. And, 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 you know, a hundred years worth of Jewish comics made everybody think that was, uh, that was a funny accent uh-huh. uh, because they'd, they'd use it as a punchline or uh, the emphasis or the uh, uh, Jewish comics sort of brought that to, uh, you know, using emphasis on words and pronunciation that, uh, that, you know, people associate with things being funny even if you don't realize where it comes from. So they think she was funny, and I have, I have a line in the book in which I describe a whole bunch of the funny things she would say intentionally and unintentionally. Um, and, uh, and then I say, you know, she seemed like such a stereotype, almost like somebody out of like a 1950s sitcom, you know, with that very thick Yiddish accent and the, the very, very Jewish mother. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, you know, she seemed very amusing, that is, in, 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 unless you happen to have known where she had been. Uh, and then I and then I I tell the stories about where she had been and things she had done and this little kind of seemingly unassuming lady you know when I started looking into it you know her the women she was with in the camps um, they told stories about her saving their lives by you know you know one woman uh, just just stopped she just sat you know she she wouldn't she wouldn't do anything more she just sat down she said let them kill me. And she tells the story of my mother grabbing her by the hair and pulling her up and saying, you will not sit here and die. You will not let the Germans win. You will, you will get up and you will walk and we will survive this. And, wow. and dragging the woman with one arm around her, you know, and, uh, you know, so that the Germans didn't kill her. Um, and uh, so this, you know, this little unassuming, very feminine lady who went to the beauty parlor every week and got her <laughs> hair put in a little bubble and she always had her nails done and, always very careful about her makeup, and, you know, this is the lady who was dragging, you know, people, you know, in the camps to, uh, to save them from, uh, from being killed. Um, uh-huh. So you never quite know what, what, what goes on inside somebody when you, just, when you just have a casual meeting with them. One thing that inspires you most about this book? I, I think it's one sentence in the book, um, and that is a story I, I tell about, it was, I don't know, must be... 30 years ago, maybe uh-huh. more, I think more than that, probably 35 or so, I was, I was having a particularly bad time with something. It was, uh, was causing a good deal of, I can't even remember what it was. It was causing a good deal of uh, stress. And uh, I, was, uh, I was with my mother, and, and uh, she, knew I was, she knew I was really upset, and she just looked at me and said, Stanley, it's better than being in Auschwitz. Wow. And, uh, and, you know, uh, I'm a terrible flyer. Uh, I hate turbulence. Uh, and whenever I'm on a plane and the plane is shaking uh-huh. so that I'm, I feel as if I'm about to scream out, uh, I think of that line. Because, yeah, <laughs> it's better than, you know, it, can, it, can, it almost always could be worse. Uh, it's, right. uh, you know, I'm, I'm here in L.A. It's um, the middle of lockdown. I'm sort of trapped in my apartment for the most part. Uh, where uh, they, 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 this semester the faculty is teaching from home, but as it happens, I'm wasting a sabbatical because I was scheduled for my sabbatical this semester, so I'm taking it. So I literally have very little to do around the house. But uh, I have a TV, I have a refrigerator, I'm free. There's nobody hitting me. Uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a lesson to be learned from my from my mother. It could be could be a lot worse. 
yeah, she uh, she was a lesson in survival. I mean, not a lot of people. I, you know, she was a very strong-willed person, very strong-willed. Didn't shall Definitely. we say always go well for me that she was so strong-willed? But it it took that. I, I write in the book that uh, you need a, a few things to really survive that kind of an incredible catastrophe, and that was you know physical strength. I think there's an unwritten story there. Right? Every Holocaust survivor I knew was a remarkably strong person for their size. I mean, just Absolutely. physically strong. Uh, my mother was ridiculously strong physically for a little tiny woman. It was like, it, you know, almost absurd how strong she was. Um, and I've met, you know, I, I was in a hospital uh, uh, seeing uh, one of my mother's old friends, a 94-year-old man some years ago, and I hugged him goodbye, and as it happened, as I hugged him, from the position I was in, I, 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 I hugged, put one arm around him, and the other arm I grabbed his bicep. This is a man who'd been in a hospital bed in the old age home for two years. He's 94. Uh If I once in my life could have had a bicep that big Uh and that strong, I I would have been showing it off. Uh Um, (laughs) You know, uh, no, they were, but they were also emotionally very strong. You didn't get through it unless you were able to survive that. And then it, it took luck, but it was a combination of three. And it was never just luck. And it was never just physical strength. It was was a combination of things and uh you know if you in some ways uh, they were able to make their own luck if they were strong enough and you know uh and and willing to to go on with it they could uh, they, they had a certain influence on whether they could you know find food or if there was an option an option they could they could kind of figure out which which option to take that might result in them living longer and yeah no it's uh yeah it's it's uh, it's a it's a time that is really well worth studying for all uh, any any amazing number of reasons but but that's one of them uh, just the right. the aspect yeah. of survival which is what my book's about my book is not about the death as much as it is the survival because I'm tracking a group of women from whom one of whom was my mother who were together from basically very early in the war and just kept getting moved from one place to another when you think they'd have died there no at the you know, sometimes the last possible moment they get moved on someplace else. And so the book is also about the Nazi decisions, not only to put them in camps and the Nazi philosophy, but those little decisions that were made that prolonged her life. Right. You know, why, 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 did, why did they pull her out of the line to the gas chamber? You know, it turned out some manufacturer in Berlin needed workers and, you know, what preferred women workers. He thought they were easier to manage and they liked their they liked the hands they thought for this kind of detailed work they were better at it than men so he asked for some women and didn't want jews didn't want jews preferred french women please right. send french women and of course it got in the, the letter got into auschwitz and uh, the nazis the the, 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 the german the guards just gathered up a bunch of jewish women and put them on a train and sent them to the factory so here in the middle of berlin this factory you know, the doors open and they find out they've got 500 Jews. And those wow. Jews were still alive. They still had their lives. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, it was a, a, lot, of, a lot of luck and, uh, and strength. Absolutely. Wow. So when your mother was alive, did she ever, gosh, go back and look at some of the stories, some stories and books that were made publish? And did she ever look back and become more confident of herself? Because... You know, she could relate in such a way and, you know, how she overcame it and became such a powerful um, woman from even back in those days to now a direction for those of us like ourselves. 
Well, you know, I don't ever think she thought of it that way. I mean, she was, it, it, it was, uh, it was not a macro uh, uh, thing she was looking at. It was a micro. It was uh-huh. her individual story of surviving and how it happened. I mean, she almost never talked about it till she got to be quite old. She had a right. stroke six years before she passed away, and it didn't wow. affect her brain, but did affect the left side of her uh, of her body. And uh, so she was in a in a wheelchair, and in, but even then she was indomitable. I mean, literally, she was you know it, uh, it, nothing nothing could could stop her. But um, she you know she looked at it from her perspective. I mean, you know, right. I, I she I asked her once about the Ludge Ghetto, which was the a ghetto she spent. In, in Warsaw, uh, uh, a couple of years in uh, before getting moved to Auschwitz, and how she had survived that because most of the people in the ghetto had been basically been killed at one point or another, and she had managed to stay in the ghetto and not get shipped to to the camps until uh-huh. uh, almost the very last possible day, and I did you know get her once to uh, to say how you know how come you were able to stay there so long uh, without getting shipped out earlier, and uh, she said. And she said that she was, uh, you know, she was a seamstress because her father had been a tailor and she had, she had worked uh, and she was very skilled at, uh, and she bragged about it. She said, oh, yeah, I was, I was the best fun. You know, I was the uh-huh. only one, she said, who could, in the factory, I was the only one they'd trust with putting on the collars of the uniforms and the cuffs. You know, so I was always there, you know, at the head of the line, you know, finishing it with the last of them because that was, that you needed a little skill for that. And I had that, you know, and she said it with like a little pride, you know, right. instead yeah. of saying this is this monstrous thing. I was put to work in slave labor. She was, she was still kind of proud that she was the, uh, like the head seamstress of this, of this stuff, uh, you know, uh-huh. and that, that's why she'd made it through because she was a uh, good, and that's what's, what in a sense, I can't say saved her life, but that, that, that was, when she came to Los Angeles, she knew nobody, she didn't speak the language, um, and uh, she had, you know, she didn't, she had no relatives that she could talk to uh, here, and she was, uh, and, and, and uh, so, how, so how did she survive? Well, she, she could sew, so she got a job <laughs> in downtown L.A. working at a, you know, as a seamstress in kind of a sweatshop uh, behind a sewing machine, and uh, uh-huh. Uh, that that kept her going, and my father was, uh, you know, had just uh, had come, he gotten out of Europe before the war, and come through Canada, and then, and then came to the United States, and was working downtown in a haberdashery store at the time, as wow. the war had just ended, and uh, they were introduced by somebody who, he knew, and who was working with the refugees, and my mother had applied for some, you know, help and guidance from this refugee assistance program, so they actually were introduced, and they, uh, seven or eight months later, they were married, I think. So, wow. uh, yeah, so that's, that's how it happened. What do you think that uh, people should learn from the Holocaust? Oh, my God. I, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I think what we should learn, the primary lesson is humanity is, is capable of amazing atrocities. Um, right. And there is, a, there is a, something in our DNA, in our, in our very genes... Uh, from more than just millennium ago, but uh, it's been around for a long, long time that we we tend to have this Darwinian feeling that the stranger is dangerous, that we're only safest with with our own and right. with our group, uh, because they, in such groups we will be protected and maybe fed 
and uh, uh, other strangers are, are there often to take what you've got. They're the enemy. The net result is that it is, it is a short step from getting people to think of another group or kind of person or a person with a certain ideology or religion. It, it, it's a very short step to go from seeing them as the other, a common you used phrase, uh, uh-huh. the other, and uh, being prepared to do horrible things to them. And I mean that seriously. And it's been understood for a long time, even though sometimes it wasn't completely understood. I mean, right. Voltaire, the great French philosopher and writer of the 18th century, it's, uh, he you know, wrote Candide. Uh, he has a line, and he, by the way, this is an almost ironic line, because Voltaire was an anti-Semite. He had no juice for Jews. But he wrote a story, an article once about religion, and it was dealt with miracles. And he was not a man who thought miracles, you know, he thought, he thought they were being, you know, misused by, you know, priests, etc., and ministers. And he, he has one line in that essay that reads, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Wow. And... And um, that, is, uh, that is what I'm saying. Uh, what, what, what studying the Holocaust does is confirm what Voltaire said, you know, 250 years ago, more. Um, and that was that, uh, yeah, it's, it, that's what it's like. It, it, it doesn't take much. And, we, and, and unless you're just prepared to give up, it means one must always be vigilant. Uh, you know, very vigilant of the hate monger, very vigilant of of, um, you know, absurdities uh, and, uh, and people trying to make you believe them because it, it turns out it's not just absurd or amusing. It is, once you get people to accept absurdities, you, you can, you, it, it turns out in, in humanity, in history, to be a short step to move on to violence, uh-huh. to rid yourself, you want to rid yourself of those, of those other bad people. You know, those Democrats, those Republicans, those Catholics, right. those Jews, those, you know, whatever, whatever, those Muslims, whatever it might be, the people of color, the people of not color, the, you know, you know, they, 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 they hate white people, they hate black people, they hate, you know, but, you know, it, I mean, it's, uh, it, it all depends. Anything can be led to, uh, that, that's an absurdity, and believing things about them can lead you to, uh, to, uh, to violence, right. to atrocities. Absolutely. Yeah. So would you say that that would be a, Hmm. An important lesson that you would teach your students as far as pursuing law further? Well, I, you know, I pursued law because I, I thought my mind was, it, it, I, I had a mind I thought connected with that and probably wouldn't have connected if I'd become a chemist. You know, it was just right. one of those things where I, I thought it was a good match. In fact, I ended up becoming a, a public defender, which I thought was the correct move, because it turned out I had a better mind for being a public defender than I would have been a prosecutor. I mean, right. it was uh, it wasn't it wasn't politics that was really important. It was just skill set. Uh, I uh, I tell my students that you know my criminal law students because that's what I teach. I tell my criminal law students, and they ask me, you know, should I become a prosecutor or a, or a defense lawyer? And I said it has has nothing to do with politics. I, I knew many a excellent criminal defense lawyer who were, were right-wing Republicans and many an excellent uh, prosecutor who were left-wing Democrats. It has nothing to do with your, your politics. It has to do with, with how you view the world and what you can do. Uh, you know, as I like, you know, for example, 
I tell them if when they were a kid, they loved making intricate, carefully detailed Legos, yeah. you know, buildings, uh-huh. and uh, then, then you're a prosecutor. If you were the kind of kid who never really enjoyed doing that and kind of had a lot more fun watching other people's buildings crumble because something went wrong and, uh-huh. and realizing that, hey, there's something wrong with that, you didn't make the base big enough, uh, if that's the kind of person you are, you're a defense lawyer because uh, that's what the two sides do. Uh, 80% of what prosecutors do is to put on a case they have to build. 80% of what defense lawyers do is they, they have to try to look for flaws in that case. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that, that's in some respects what I teach my students. Now, when I teach them about the Holocaust, which I, I teach a separate course, uh-huh. and about genocide in general, I teach a course. I created a course called Law and Genocide, uh, which I've taught at Loyola in a number of, a number of years. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I, t- I teach them about what lawyers can do. I mean, uh, reparations in, uh, in setting up systems in which there are some potential consequences to the people who commit these crimes that they, they actually might be punished for it if they keep doing it. Right. Uh, I don't believe that the fear of consequences is strong enough to eliminate all such behavior, but I think it somewhere, sometime, has some effect on somebody and restraining them a bit. So, you know, in this business, you, you, can't, you can't make solutions that solve everything, but you can, you can help occasionally with things. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I, reviewed, I reviewed through one of the interviews that you had done, and you had uh, stated that um, Hitler never really had gone to the concentration camps, that he, that he claimed that he did, but he didn't. Do you think in any way that he was maybe afraid to witness some of the actions he was doing? Oh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, what I said in the book was that there's no credited record of Hitler having gone to a camp that, that I had been able to find. And that doesn't, I mean, it, uh, it, I, I don't know the reason why exactly. You know, you never quite know. Uh, it, much of the Nazi government was... Um, about uh, from the from a play about Beckett, uh, uh-huh. um, yeah, the famous uh, the cat the, uh, the the saint Saint Beckett, who was uh, English uh, English priest, um, and that is that the king said, "Well, you know, uh, Henry the Second said, well, nobody, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest?'" Uh, and that was, uh, in many ways, the way the German government under Hitler seemed to have run. You had a you had an you sort of had a general idea of what of what Hitler wanted you to do. Uh, right. So he tasked uh, Heinrich Himmler as interior minister eventually and head of the SS and head of the uh, Gestapo, all three of them, uh, who I write quite a bit about it in the book. He tasked him with, you know, creating the Holocaust. And then, okay, you take care of this and uh, just make sure no Jews get away, you know, kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, kill them all. But, but then the details and the actual execution of it literally and figuratively was was you know he relied on his underlings to do it he he didn't really do it himself he was mm-hmm. just sort of these general broad theories and then he'd tell and then other people would know they had a uh, there, one one great historian referred to this as the principle of working towards the fuhrer meaning doing your work to to try to execute as much of what the fuhrer's desires were uh, because it was a, a personality cult around uh, around Hitler, uh, always very scary when you have personality cults. 
because people just, you know, follow the leader and sometimes do even more than the leader wanted, sometimes less, but uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous uh, paradigm that exists in such cults. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, tell me where we can get the book or tell our audience where they yeah. can get the book, <laughs> I should say. We already have it. Uh, tell our audience where they can get the book. Well, I, I would have said uh, bookstores, but I'm not entirely certain how many of them are still open at the moment. Uh, it's on Amazon. Um, uh, the uh, I, I checked the other day. There were uh, they'd actually gone all the way down to like four copies, and they were back and had more, and now they're back down to about eight or nine copies on Amazon. But hard copies can be acquired from Amazon. They nice. can be acquired also directly from the publisher, which is Potomac Books. Um, they, by the way, there is also a, it, yes, there's a digital download, there's a hard copy, there's also an audio that uh, 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 recorded books bought the audio rights, and I auditioned, and so I do the, I do the reading myself. They made <laughs> nice. me audition, they really That's did, great. they wanted to hear my, because uh, they told me they, they were hiring an actor to do it, and I said, unless the actor's name is Lee Shriver, I'd like to audition. <laughs> wow! Turned out it wasn't Lee Shriver. No, it wasn't. It, so, uh, so I auditioned and I so I read it. Uh, the only difference between the book and the audio and the the hard copy or the or the digital is that the audio doesn't have the, the end notes. Uh, I I tried. I've got about the book is actually not long, but I have uh-huh. I have forty two pages of end notes and bibliography, which obviously nobody has to read, but um, it's. Uh, a heavily documented book and that's in the hard copy and in the uh in absolutely the and it has some pictures in it too i enjoyed the pictures it does i yeah. did enjoy it's the got, pictures uh, it's got me as an eight-year-old in boyle heights where we used to live uh-huh. and, uh, and yes. uh, it's uh gotten pictures of my mother and it's got uh, some pictures of some of the that i managed to discover of some of the people involved uh the uh the swedish jew who actually ended up saving my mother's life by uh which is in what the story centers on something we haven't talked about it's quite literally my mother's life was saved because some you know kind of ordinary although it turned out he wasn't ordinary at all but just a business guy from sweden uh-huh. you know uh, uh managed to fly into nazi germany fall to berlin while the war was still going on from sweden this, this jewish guy who could have been arrested and killed on the spot obviously just for being a jew um and he flies into meet with some head nazis uh on uh, based on a total sham the sham was that he was going to uh he was in a position to uh to help the german high command uh you know uh, get a ceasefire and uh and survive the post-war world without you know without being put on on trial for their crimes and, and that sort of stuff and of course he he had no influence in that he had right, none it's right. just like a it's a bluff and but you know he flies in and using this bluff he uh he gets uh, he gets them to agree, and in a very very interesting way, to release some Jewish women from this camp that's right outside Berlin, the only death camp on German land, and uh, he agrees he gets them to agree to release some Jewish women from the camp, uh, and allow them to take the rather harrowing and turned out to be deadly for some uh, trip across Germany into Sweden, and uh, uh, my mother was one of them. Wow, well, thank thankful uh, so, for that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, Stan, so, uh, or else, or else, this book would have never been written because I wouldn't absolutely. be here to write it. Well, it is definitely a great book. I will tell you that. Yes, and we. Also By the way, the easiest way to find it's probably just to look up my name, Stan Goldman, because 
Stanley Goldman or Stan Goldman, because the title of the book sometimes throws people. They, it's, it's a paraphrasing of a line from Shakespeare's last play, Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream. But i got to admit, a lot of people say they can't remember that. So if you just look up Stan Goldman on Amazon, last time I looked, there were three Stan Goldmans with books for sale on Amazon. One, one, one was my book about the Holocaust. Another was a book about Moby Dick. And a third book was about how to... How to win at slot machines? And, and, uh, if I was the if I was the Stan Goldman who wrote all three of those, I would actually be the most interesting man in the world. But I only wrote this one. But uh, so you should be able to tell which one's me. Wow. Yeah. Well, I definitely recommend it. It is yeah. a very good book, and you know we've kept up on that history for a long time, mm-hmm. and so we appreciate you taking the actual time to write it. And give us the great story from your mother's point of view and from her life. And it's, it, I love history. So, you know, it, it's definitely something worth spending time to. Well, maybe my history professors from UCLA will, uh, you know, if any of them read it, will say, oh, this guy went to UCLA. Well, finally wrote a history book. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, uh, you know, it's, I, I, guess, I guess a history book had been sitting somewhere in my background since I was an undergrad and finally wrote one. Well, it's definitely worth it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Stan, oh, thank, you. thank you so much for coming on the show. We really do appreciate it. Yeah. And just like we're wishing everybody, we wish you the best in this whole ordeal that we're going through right now. And enjoy L.A. as it's empty, because that's the best yes. L.A. ever. <laughs> and, no smog. Uh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But thank you so much for being on the show sure. and sharing thank this you. wonderful story with us. We thoroughly yeah, enjoyed I, it. Yeah. I appreciated your time. Thank you. I totally love going back into the past. History is so exciting. Mm-hmm. It really is. You learn so much. And then when you get you get the perspective of somebody who had like his mother yeah. in, in that time and time period, you can learn all those different things. And I love that. Yeah. Absolutely love that. It is an amazing book. You should go get it. You can get it on Amazon. There is an audio version somewhere, I think, mm-hmm. that you can get. Uh, it's a very great read, very entertaining, very historic. Highly recommended. Yes, highly recommended. Uh, I want to thank Stan for coming on the show, yeah. of course. I want to thank you guys for joining us every week and coming back week after week, of course, and being with us, staying well and staying safe, of course. Yes. You can get all the information about us and anything that's upcoming for the rest of the year at our website. ChrisandWill.com. You can also follow us on Instagram. At Chris.N.Will. Yep. And tell your friends about us. We love to entertain everybody. We love to be there for you because, of course, we love you guys. But for now, you know, we've got to go. Be sure to check us out next week for another great episode of What About Our Life with Chris and Will. Another great topic, another great guest. And again, we want to thank you all for joining us. We want to thank Stan for joining us. And, you know, it's been fun. It's been a great uh, time. Yeah. It's been very entertaining. We love what we do. Of I course. Say that. <laughs> say that. Remember to love yourself and the world will love you in return. But for now, guys, we got to go. Bye. Bye. Bye.